0: Romans chapter 12. And now let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful evening that you've given to us. We thank you for the rain, Father. We didn't want it all at once, but we thank you for having it. We thank you because we need rain. We also thank you, Father, for your blessings in our life, that you don't just rain water on us, but you rain love and blessing and protection upon us. You are a generous and a good God, and we thank you tonight, and we've come to celebrate you. And now we turn to the Word of God. This is a gift that you've given to us, to your church. We thank you that it is a, it is a living Word. It's unlike any other book that we have, for it is alive. You speak to us through this Word, and it is, it's different for us every day. It speaks to us where we are. And tonight, there are things you want to speak to each one of us individually, to open the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. There is a calling for our life, and there's a hope that you have for us in that. And now we ask you through the Word of God and the anointing of your Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding to see that. We thank you, Father, for this Word. We trust the Spirit of God as the Word is spoken to breathe on it and breathe into our hearts words of life, and we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we began last week a, a study that I've done in School of Ministry for a number of years and that I did here two years ago, a course on renewing the mind. It's one of the most important subjects that you can understand, and you'll see why hopefully tonight. Last week, we kind of did an introduction to the subject of just the mind because there's so many teachings out there about the mind. If you turn on PBS, you'll find some point somebody on there telling you how to, you know, how to think and open your heart open your mind to positive thoughts and all that stuff when i grew up there was a very popular movement called positive thinking and there were some positive thinking teachers out there and basically what a lot of and a lot of those teachings are successful because they've adopted principles from the bible but they've taken principles from the bible without the author of the bible behind it and they'll work but they'll only work so far because they don't have god's wisdom behind it they've taken The ideas of God and the principles of God, but the spirit of God is not breathing them into people's lives. And so, because we have God's word here on it, we have a much greater hope than they do to go to a a much greater level. And so, we talked last week, brief or talked the whole time last week, about the mind and the attitude about the mind. And we saw that you know that that uh, so many. Christians, especially Charismatics or Word of Faith and, and, and people like that, we've kind of had an attitude that in order to be spiritual, you have to throw your mind out. And I ended by misquoting the verse we're going to look at tonight, that uh, we're renewed by the removing of the mind. And so the idea is if, well, if, any, if you think or you're in, if you're educated or you're, you're, you're logical or something like that, that you're unspiritual, and yet God's extremely logical, God's extremely educated, and God's extremely re- well-reasoned, and the Bible says He does everything decently and in order. So it's a matter of knowing where that fits in in its proper place, and that's where people get out of balance. And we talked about the importance of the mind, that it's important to not only have one, but know how to use it. And what we're going to look at in this course that we go through together is we're going to learn tonight, we're going to talk about the importance of renewing your mind, Then we're going to learn about how to... What the, purpose of your mind is. Because most people have no idea why God gave you a mind. So we just, therefore it's like having a a power tool and you don't know what it's there for, so you just use it. And you know, I've gotten, my wife will tell you if you ever, if I give her the chance, the kind of trouble I got into using tools for the wrong purpose. I Well, it's a long story and I don't want to embarrass myself, but let's say there was a very happy plumber back in Belmont, Massachusetts, because I decided to change a simple washer on my sink. And uh, he had to come in and rip the whole wall out and replace it because I used the wrong tool. And I was too prideful to stop using it. I was going to make it work somehow. So if you don't know what the tool's for, you'll misuse it. And you may need a spiritual plumber to come in and, and do some repair work. So we're going to learn what your mind is, what its function is. You're going to learn how to find it. And I'm not, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a cute phrase, but it's true. Most people, don't, their mind is out of control. And and a lot of people know it's out of control, but they don't have any confidence that they can get it under control. So we're going to learn how to identify what's your mind from other parts of you because there's a difference between your mind and your brain. There's a difference between your mind and your soul. And so understand what your mind is and then learn how to gain control of it. And then, Because in order to renew it, you've got to be in control of it, it. Otherwise, it's renewing you. It's working on you. It's controlling you. And that's where so many people are. So that's basically what we talked about last night. So we're going to start. The key scriptures we have in here are Romans chapter 2. but We're going to start Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But we're going to start in verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. And then we're going to go backwards. (laughs) but Just follow me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... So he's talking to Christians... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We're going to learn that there's three parts to you. There's your spirit man, which is who you really are. That's the real you. There's your soul, which is basically your personality. And they live in your body. Most Christians are dominated by their body which is like having a car that dominates you. That body is just your means of transportation in this world. It is your earth suit. And yet, unless we understand so and understand how to begin to get control, in many Christians, their body's just dominating. They just do whatever their body wants to do. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven: I keep my body under, lest having preached to others, I myself might fall short of the goal. So it's important to have our body under control but if you can't get your mind under control you'll never get your body under control because your mind and your body will gear up against your will gang up against your spirit and we'll look at all of that. So Paul talks firstly here about about presenting your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. So it's not some great sacrifice we're making it's a reasonable thing in light of who we he, we belong to him. Paul into, later on or in First Corinthians says don't you know that your body's not your own? you're not your own your body's a temple the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit so it's a reasonable thing but we're not here to talk so much about the body verse 2 and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God but in order to understand the framework of this we're going to go back to verse 12 and we're going to look at the beginning of this because the Apostle Paul says I beseech ye Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... Now, let's stop there a second. I want to teach you... This is one of the things I would drill into the stool of ministry, students. I beseech you, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself this very simple question. What is it, therefore? And that's kind of a cute thing, but the significance of it is this... Paul did not start the book of Romans in chapter 12. So for us to begin a study in chapter 12 verse 1 or verse 2, we're going to miss the true significance if we don't understand what he talked about before chapter 12, because he's basing what he's about to say on what he's already said. So in order to understand the true significance of it, we've got to build up the momentum because he wrote this as one long letter. Paul didn't sit down on the first day, and you know what? Let me write chapter 1. And he sat down there with his scribe, and at the end of chapter 1, when he really beat up the unbelievers, he said, you know, I need to take a break. I'll come back to it tomorrow, and I think I'll start chapter 2 tomorrow. And then the next day, he said, you know what? It's time to look at the, at the believers, and, then, and said, you know, better off than the unbelievers. And so he said, I think I'll write chapter 2. And then the next day, he wrote one long dissertation, now whether he did it in one sitting or not, but Paul did not write this in chapters and verses. Any of the books of the Bible were not written that way. They were broken up to chapters and verses later on by editors so that I could tell you tonight where to turn. And so we could find verses... Uh, otherwise I'd have to take go in your scroll of Romans until somewhere around the middle and we'll see if we found the right place or not so I could thats a reason, but it's not what Paul, how Paul wrote it so what is he saying there I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God so Paul is appealing to something that he's just talked about to them in the first 11 chapters so what I want to do Is I want to very briefly take you through, without turning there, I want to briefly take you through the first. 11 chapters, so we get some run, a running start at chapter 12 and understand what it is, these mercies, because he's saying, by the, these mercies of God that I have just told you about, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. He's motivating them to do something, and that's why part of why he wrote the first 11 chapters. Now, we've got a little advantage because on Sunday mornings, we've been talking about chapter 1. We've been talking about the purpose of the whole book of Romans really is to give an explanation to a church that Paul had never visited what the gospel was all about. And in order to do that, he doesn't start with what Jesus did. He starts with what God requires. And so we've looked at that. We've been looking at that on Sunday mornings, at the righteousness of God. And so what we saw and we see in chapter 1, Paul introduces this concept of the righteousness of God, what God requires. And then Paul is telling them, and what I'm going to tell you is that the righteousness that God has, the good news, the gospel, is that God has given His righteousness to us one of two ways, and there's only one way that works. But in order to understand the way that's the free gift, he has to take them on a little journey. And so he tells them in the rest of chapter 1 what God requires, which is to be as righteous as he is. And then he goes into chapter 2, and he says, and those of you who are sitting there saying, ah, I'm a lot better than the people you wrote about in chapter 2, one, he says, you've got to realize you're not doing it either. None of you are righteous. In fact, that's what chapter 3 says. None of you are righteous. No, not one of you all of you fall short of the glory of God. And that sounds like it's terrible news, but he goes on to basically say, and that's what qualifies you to receive the gift of righteousness that this whole gospel is about. Because as long as we think we can earn something, we will not receive the gift. And there's just something in human flesh, fallen human flesh, that wants to contribute something to where we're getting. And if we get to contribute anything, then we've got to take that last song that we sang so powerfully and throw it out, I give you all the glory. Because what we really mean is I give you most of the glory. But I want a little bit. I want to be able to know that I did a little something. I want to help you out, God. And so most of the effort God has to put in our lives through the Holy Spirit is to convince us you can do nothing. You can contribute nothing to your righteousness. All you can do is get in the way and ruin it. And that's Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And Paul introduces in chapter 3, the righteousness that God has given to us is only received by faith. And then he goes in chapter 4 to talk about what this faith is. And he uses Abraham as an example. Because the Jews were all hung up with the law. They had come to believe, and we'll talk about this more on, on Sunday mornings. They had come to believe that because God gave them the law, because they, but the law belonged to them, therefore that made them righteous. And Paul has to dispel that illusion by saying, no. It's only those that keep the law perfectly all the time. And, of course, nobody can do that. And Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 that the righteousness that God promised, promised originally to Abraham in, Roman, in, in Genesis uh, chapter 15, where it says, Abraham, Abraham believed God And it was accounted to him as righteousness and goes on to say, not for his sake alone, but also for those who would believe. Romans 4, Paul introduces this and says, this righteousness that God gave to Abraham because he believed to him was before the right of circumcision was given. The circumcision was given as a sign that Abraham had believed God and God had attributed his righteousness to him. And then he goes on to say, so he's basically saying Abraham's right standing before God was because he believed God's promise. In the same way, Our right standing before God can only come by receiving the promise He's made to us through Christ and through the cross, that on the cross Jesus paid for your sin. It's by faith in that and that alone. And now in chapter 5, Paul begins to talk about that righteousness, talk about what that means for us. Then he starts by saying, therefore having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we should know that because we have this faith in Christ, because we've been given this righteousness, is it's given us peace with God. That's priceless right there. God's not angry at you. I don't know what you think about it, how kind of day you had, whether you were, felt like you were a great greatest Christian the day you've ever been or you were the biggest failure today. You still have peace with God. He's not angry at you because of the cross. Not because you smiled at everybody or were the sweetest thing that could possibly be today. We want to be. But if you weren't, God's still not angry at you. He poured His anger out for today on that cross 2,000 years ago. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then He goes on and introduces this idea that just as Adam was the first man and he was given an assignment by God and he was disobedient, then God sent a second Adam that was Christ. And through the second Adam, because of his obedience, he was able to rectify what the first Adam ruined by his disobedience The first Adam let loose sin in the world and all the consequences of sin including sickness and poverty and all the stuff that goes with it. The second Adam came and by his obedience he weighed a way to reverse that in all those who would believe in him. Then in chapter 6 God introduces the idea that because we've been made righteous we can now have victory over sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you for you're not under the law but you're under grace. We're not in bondage to sin. We're not in bondage to sin that says that if I sin, if I, if I blow it, then death comes in. So it's all or nothing. We don't want to sin, but under the law, you would sin. You couldn't help with sinning. But now we have the freedom to... Gr- it's like this. I'll explain it to you this way. Use this big stage. Please. Suppose I wanted... I was going to... I couldn't because I don't know how to do this. Suppose I was going to teach you how to walk a tightrope." And I said, what we're going to do? For all of you that want, all of you that want to learn how to ride a tightrope, we have arranged out in the, in the parking lot out there, we have two poles, and they're about fifty feet apart, and they're fifty feet in the air. And what we're going to do is line up, we'll start over here, and you can line up on this one, and all you do is you just walk across like this until you get to the other side. And you'll, you'll get the feel of it as you're going, So let's start over here. Let's, uh, Gary, you get up there first. And you just step out. And Steve, you're right behind. What's going to happen? You're going to cling to the pole. You're going to be afraid to take a step. Why? Because one wrong move and what happens? It's over. You don't get a a second chance. One misstep and you go down. That's what the law was like. One sin and you died. That's why it was bondage. And you know what's going to happen? If that's what it is, you get out there and what are you going to be thinking more than anything? I got to be careful lest I fall. I got to be careful. And the problem is you can't walk on something like that if you're too careful. The more you think about falling, the more you're likely to fall. The more you think about obeying the law, the more you're likely to sin. And we'll learn later on there's a principle in Renewing the Mind that will explain why to you. But what Romans 6 says is because you've been redeemed from the law, because you've been delivered from the law, you're now free to walk in victory over sin because you don't have to be afraid to step out on the rope and learn how to do this because if you make a slip, there's a great net under there called the cross to catch you and to put you back up on there and to wipe off your bruises and to fix your injuries and set you back so you're free to step out and learn how to walk through this life without sin because there's a net under there to catch you if you slip. That's called grace. That's called the cross. And that net cost a lot so that you could be caught. And so Romans 6 says, I have good news for you. You can learn to have victory over the sin. See, the grace doesn't mean, well, we just, whatever happens, happens. You know, because of the cross, you know, we're going to all mess up because we're all human. That's not God's plan for you. His plan is for His Spirit of God to transform you into the image of His Son. Romans 7 then talks about the process. And Romans 7 begins talking about Paul's struggle. Paul's struggle. And then starting around verse 14, Paul talks about how the very things I want to do, I don't do. And he's talking about as a Christian. And the very things I don't want to do are the very things I go out and do. Anybody ever feel like that? (laughs) Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's interesting in there. If you read from Romans 7, verse 14 on through the end, you will not find the Holy Spirit mentioned once. But you will find Paul, the personal pronoun, I, my, me, mentioned all over the place. So Romans 7, verse 14 on, is Paul's own effort to try to live this Christianity out on his own. And he ends up with this frustrating statement. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. And then the glorious chapter 7, which is the answer. Because of Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. We were under the old law, which was sin and death. But we've been given a new law, which is the law of the Spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of God that brought His life into us because His life into us now, we can begin to live that kind of life because His life is on the inside working its way out. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, the bondage of it. For what the law could not do because it relied on my flesh that was weak, God did, not will do, He did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned my sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in me who walks not according to my own efforts, the flesh, but walks according to trusting in the Spirit and what He's doing in me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Romans 8 lays it out, and ends with this wonderful, wonderful finish. Who can separate us from the love of God? Contribulation, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or famine, as it is written, we're like sheep being led to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life No principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God. It's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't write those words sitting in some theological seminary writing doctrine and theology. He wrote those out of his own experience. He'd just taken us through in Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and then 8. Then in 9... Paul addresses the Jews. He says, well, what about them? If this has been given to the Gentiles, have they been forgotten? And he says, no, not at all. God's faithful to His covenant and His promises. Just because they've forgotten it for a while doesn't mean that God's not going to complete them and bring them back in again. And he warns the Gentiles. He says, if God would break off the natural branch because of their unbelief, and graft you in because of your faith. Don't think that He would not be willing, that He won't graft them again again, so keep believing is what He's saying there. And then He talks about His promises. And now let's pick up in chapter 11. We're getting to the therefore. Having gone through all of this, talked about God's mercy that He's going to display towards Israel who's rejected Him. He says, I haven't forgotten them. I haven't forgotten them. It's interesting because in there is a, is a verse that's often misunderstood. Paul talks about, but I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and judgment on whom I'll have judgment. And he refers to, to Jacob and Esau. He said, "Esau, I, uh, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And what he's saying is, I chose Esau, Jacob, and not Esau. What he's getting there is, there were uh, twins, and Esau was the firstborn. Normally the firstborn had all the rights, the inheritance and everything else. And God chose the secondborn over the firstborn. And what God, Paul is saying there is, what right do we have to judge God's selection, God's mercy? Because what God says is, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And the essence of that is, the very essence of mercy is we're not getting what we deserve. So Paul's saying, who are you to stand up to God and says, how come this isn't fair? We don't want God to be fair with us. We don't want God to be just with us. Because if I get justice, I go to hell and so do you. I got a lot of company in this room. I want God's mercy. So he's saying, how do you have a right to decide who God gives His mercy to? Because God gives His mercy because He wants to. Yes. So he's talking about God's mercy to Israel. God is going to be merciful to Israel. And Paul, after all this discussion, comes up here on verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it shall be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be all glory forever. Amen. Paul is just having a fit here. Wow! Look at the mercy of God, the goodness of God. Look at what he's done with us. Romans 1 and 2. We all deserve, we all deserve the wrath of God for our unrighteousness. We've all suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But God, through His mercy, has opened a new way, which is by simply believing His promise. And if we'll do that, His Spirit will set us free from the bondage of sin and the fear of death, and He'll give us victory in our lives over sin, victory in our lives over the things that had us so bound up. And Israel, His mercy is going to be poured out on them eventually. Oh, God is so merciful. God is so wonderful. Paul's not sitting writing words. He's so caught up in the magnificence of God. And then as he finishes this, he turns to them and he says, Therefore, my brethren, I beseech ye, by these amazing mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, the reason we hold back from giving ourselves to God, I mean fully, the reason we hold back and recoil at that, even though inside we want to, is because we don't trust Him. I mean, before you're going to put yourself in somebody's hands, you've got to trust Him. I'll never forget lying on a bed in the pre-operation room three years ago when they were going to do a very minor hernia repair and the surgeon walks in and I realize they're going to put me out and I'm in his hands. i got to trust him. And I was willing to do that. And I have trouble putting myself, my future, my body, my desires, my will, into the hands of a God who created me, redeemed me, loved me, has lavished His mercy out on me. That's why Paul is saying, because of what He's like, because of how merciful He's been, because of this, and I've tried to help you to see what He's done for you. Because of that, present your bodies to Him. Give yourself over to Him that you may put yourself into His hands. Go the... Yeah, go on to chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by this merciful God, this God who's been so good to you and merciful, present your bodies to Him, give yourself to Him. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. It's only your reasonable service considering what He's done for you. I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever felt sorry for yourself? (laughs) The other day I got up, I'd forgotten what it was I was going to have to do. And this thought starts running to my mind. You know, you're awful tired. You know, maybe you should back down a little bit. You're awful tired. And all of a sudden, I could pick this picture of Jesus as they put that cross on him. I mean, I was awake for a few hours that night. That's why I was feeling sorry for myself. He was up all night, having been beaten, spit upon, falsely tried twice, thorns crushed on his head, flesh stripped off his back. And then, in the morning, they take this heavy cross with splinters in it and drop it on his shoulders to carry up to the place they're going to nail it to him. I got to believe he was tired. And even though he was tired, he did that for me. It changed how I looked at it. Reasonable service in light of what He's done for us. Reasonable service. All right. That's our bodies. Now let's look at chapter verse 2. This is really what we're going to be talking about in this course. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He tells us two things, really three things in here. One thing to not do, one thing to do, and then the third thing is why and what's at stake. The first thing is something we're not to be. Do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed is a Greek word, sushimatizo, and that word means to have some outside pressure press down on something and f- change the outward image of it to reflect that pressure like a mold. The, you ladies that have ever made a jello mold or something like that? I don't know if they still do that anymore, but my mother would do that, especially at a special occasion or something like that. She had one like a fish or something, and she would take the jello and she'd pour the you know mix the stuff up and pour it in there, and then she'd. S- it in the refrigerator until the jello hardened, and when it hardened, she took it out and t- flipped it over, and she 'd lift the mold off, and the jello on the top now resembled exactly the inside of that mold. The mold had changed formed the outer appearance of the jello. It didn 't change the jello itself, it changed what the jello looked like, what could be seen. i don 't have it with me, but if you have a coin in your pocket, you 'll notice it has a head and a tail, but it didn't come that way. They put whatever the metal is that they out, put mixed together, and then at some point it goes to the mint, and in the mint they have a mold that is whatever the, 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 the image is that's supposed to be on it. If it's a penny, it's Lincoln's uh, a profile, or whatever it is, and then that coin is pressed under tremendous pressure to Im- impress on that piece of metal the form or the image that the mold is designed to do. Do I get the image there? I'll never forget when my grandfather would show me his little tricks. We went out to a train station and he would take a penny and he'd put it down on the train track when the train was going to come through. And he knew when the express was coming through with this train stop. And we'd put it down and the train would come through and run over the thing and the thing was just squished out. So he took the surface, he took the image off of it. That's what that word conformed means. It means to take some outside pressure that has an, has an appearance about it and by that pressure make the outside of something else its image, change it into its image. And so it doesn't change the nature of the metal, it changes what the outside of it looks like. And if that pressure pressures it into a quarter, then you recognize it as a quarter. If it's the image that would be on a penny, you recognize it as a penny. So your recognition of what that coin is, is based on what that mold was that pressured it. You all, everybody with me on that? That's what that word conformed means. And it says, do not be conformed to this world. The Greek word for world there is Iones, which means era. It means uh, uh, the attitudes or the culture of the times. It means the, 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 the processes of thinking, the value systems. So what Paul is saying is do not allow the world's values, the world's way of doing things, the world's approach to put pressure on you from the outside so that on the outside you begin to look and act and talk just like the world. He's talking to Christians. So he's saying, don't allow that to happen. That means if I do nothing, that's most likely what's going to happen. Satan could not stop you from being saved. But once he lost that battle, he went back to the next defense line, or offensive line, and that's to make sure that whatever God did in you didn't affect anybody else. So we're not to be conformed to this world. Now if The Bible says we're not to be conformed. That means it's possible, regardless of what the pressure's like, it's possible that I don't have to be conformed so that I look like the world. What he's talking about is so that under pressure, we're under pressure, and this pressure. Since I first put this course together, the pressure that's on the church now has gone up ten times to talk like the world, to be like the world, to think like the world. They don't care what we're like on the inside. They just don't want us on the outside to look any different than they do than the world does not to be conformed not to be conformed to be squeezed by a mold into something that on the outside is different than our real nature than its real nature It's to assume an outward expression that's patterned after something else that does not come from within but comes from without Satan's goal is to keep you from looking any different than the world His idea was for you not to get saved, but once you get saved, the only way you're going to affect anybody is if you look like Christ. And his goal is to keep you from looking like Christ by keeping the pressure on you outwardly so that we're under pressure to be accepted by others. We're under pressure to fit in with others. We don't want to be different. We don't want to stand out, which means we want to look like the world. We want to talk like the world, and yet come to church and recognize we're not like the world in here. And the devil loves that. We'll see why in a minute. Okay. But what we are to do is to be transformed. That's a different Greek word. That word is the Greek word metamorphomai. And you've probably heard the expression metamorphosis, which is, talks about a change that a, like a butterfly goes through or a caterpillar goes through. And I'm sure you've all in school been taught, you know, a caterpillar, it's these ugly little things, at some point crawl up in a branch somewhere and they spin a cocoon. And in the process of that spinning of the cocoon, they're creating a, a, a safe place for them. And while they're in there, they undergo a change. And when the time is right, that that caterpillar in there has changed and it begins to spread its wings that it now has and it forces off this cocoon and what comes out is this beautiful butterfly which is why a butterfly is often used as a symbol of being born again. It It reflects a change. The reason that doesn't work is it's still the same being that was the caterpillar. It's just changed its form. But the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He's not in a different form He's a new creation. Some of those translations say He's a new species of being from the inside out. But the word that metamorphosis comes from is a Greek word which means to change. Get this. It means to change the outside to reflect the nature of the inside. So here's the contrast we're not allow the words, the world's process, the world's pressure, which is trying to take, keep what's on the inside of you from showing up on the outside. By pressure... Pressure of your finances, pressure of your job, pressure of your family, pressures, natural pressures that come against you, that get you to worry, get you afraid, get you to think about the things of the world. What happens if I lose my job? What if the economy goes down? What if this? Those are all the world's methods and systems, and we're so indoctrinated by them that they control our thinking process, and if they control our thinking process, we're going to find out they control what God's able to do on the inside of us. So the Satan's plan is to take the pressures of the world and make them so great on you that regardless of what the, king, the kingdom of God that's inside you, it never shows up on the outside. And instead what we're to do is to learn how to be transformed, to take what God put on the inside of us and bring it to the outside. And the word actually means so that the outside surface will reflect what the nature is on the inside through a change. Through a change. So we're to not be conformed. We're not to allow the world to pressure us to keep inside of us the nature of God that's been put in us. And we'll see that more clearly next week. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Oh, there's more to the verse though. There's more to the verse. Oh, by the way, the word metamorphoma only occurs three times it occurs here it occurs in Matthew 7 12 and Mark 9 2 which are where Jesus was transfigured on the mountain where Jesus goes up on the mountain takes Peter James and John and then he goes off for a distance and he's the Bible says he's transfigured and Moses and Moses and Elijah appear and what happens is Jesus' glory begins to shine out of him and they see him in all his glory. His, the light of, the, the light of his, his, his divine nature breaks out of his human shell. And, the, and the, this glow takes place. And the glory of God that's on the inside is now exploded on the outside. That word, tra- that word transfigured is the same word. Transformed. So on that mountain, Jesus' real nature now, he let it come to the outside as he spoke with Elijah. And he spoke... With, was it Moses, Yeah? Um, now, OK. And so the battle that's going on in your life isn't to keep you from getting saved because you're saved. Amen. And if you're not, we can take care of that tonight. The battle is to take what's going happen on the inside and keep it from affecting anybody. Because notice was said, What's at stake here? Is that we might prove something. Usually, when this verse is quoted, that last part's left off. That we may prove what is the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. What's that about? Well, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Little verse stuck in here that I think most people read over and may not seem to have much meaning to you, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective tonight. Paul's talking about revealing the mystery that was shown to him and has now been revealed, which is the gospel and it is available now to the Gentiles. Verse 10, To the intent that now the manifold or many-sided wisdom of God might be made known by the church To principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. To the intent, so God's intent in revealing the gospel is that the manifested wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus. The good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 3 is saying this, that what's going on in, in, in the world today, what's going on in the church is simply a part of a great drama that's going on in the spiritual realm. Remember what happened before the earth was reformed. There was a rebellion in heaven. Lucifer and one-third of the angels rebelled against God and God's ways and His authority, and they were evicted from heaven to this earth. They were banished to this earth. Well, there's another two-third of the angels up there. And God decided He wanted to establish something for them. Because notice, what's going to be, what's being proven is to principalities and powers in heavenly places. Those are spirit beings. They can be, they may be demonic and they may be angelic, I don't know. But God's proving something. He's establishing a case to the spiritual beings that are in the heavenly places. He's, there's a trial going on. That's how I look at it with my legal background. There's a trial where God is proving something, is establishing something to the other the spiritual beings that are out there. And when a trial, you have witnesses, You're, you have evidence that you present for your case. And I believe that the issue that God is proving. They they don't have any doubt of his power. They've seen it. What they don't understand, they understand raw power. But am I suspicious that what they don't understand is mercy? They don't understand grace. Elsewhere it says that's why God was able to trap Satan. You know, he traps Satan because Satan could never imagine that God because he's seen God in his glory he could never imagine God he's seen the son in all his glory he could never imagine that God would take this glorious son and sacrifice him for something like you and me that doesn't compute in Satan's brain it doesn't compute and because of that he couldn't see it coming he fell into the trap says, otherwise, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They couldn't understand it. Because it takes a love and a mercy that's beyond comprehension, which is what Paul refers to. And God wants to prove what His mercy and grace will do with something like you and me. So there's a trial going on. And I believe at the end of the ages, God's going to present as his witnesses his church. Because look what it says. It says here, to the intent, this is Ephesians 3:10, to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Might be made known by the church. God's going to hold the church up and show it to these angelic beings, fragile, weak people like you and me, and He's going to say, this is what love will do! This is what mercy will do! But he's begun that trial now because there's thousands and thousands of other people out there that he wants to prove to them. They don't have to measure up. He wants to prove to them that alcohol, drugs, sex, sin is not going to solve you. It's not going to deliver you. There's only one thing that's going to deliver you. There's only one thing that's going to change this world around. There's only one thing that can change anything around. And that is the love of God through Christ Jesus. This is why Satan is so threatened by you. Why he's so threatened by the church. He knows what's inside you. He knows what's been put in the church. He knows the kingdom of God is within us. He knows the love of God's been shed abroad in our hearts. He knows we're filled with the spirit of God. Not a spirit. The spirit of God. He knows what's in the church. He knows the potential. And he's scared that somehow that's going to begin to leak out and others are going to be able to see it. So he has to keep the pressure on. The pressure on. So first of all, we don't even realize what's in us and who's in us. We don't even realize we've been set free. We don't even realize the good news of the gospel. The only way the world's going to see... What God's grace has done in us and for us is as that works itself to the outside, they can't see inside of us. We don't even do that. And yet 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are to consider, we are to no longer consider Christ according to the outer man. In the same way, he says, we're no longer to consider each other that way. That's what he says, don't you know if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature? Look to your left. No, go ahead. Look to your left. Look at your neighbor. Look to your right. You're looking at new creatures. You're not looking at the person you see. The real person in them is inside, and that's a new creature created in the image of Christ. And so, Satan, in this great trial, in the pre trial preparations, Satan's putting pressure on the church so that we will be conformed, we will look just like the world will be a witness that has no effect. And we're being called by the mercies of God through Paul that we are to be transformed. The transformation is to take what God's already put on the inside and allow Him to bring it to the outside so that others can see. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Glorify your Father's mercy, not my good works that's in heaven. And that's what he means by proving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now how is this going to happen? There's only one way. By the renewing of your mind. Prayer helps. Fasting can help. But the Bible says we're transformed. What's on the inside of us will work its way to the outside only by the renewing of our mind and that's the purpose of this course and that's what's at stake in whether or not we do it. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Father we thank you tonight. We've begun a journey together. and Father as we see, as we look at these scriptures how critical this journey is. It's not just our well-being. It's not just the well-being of this church. Father, we're part of a grand plan that you have, a grand program that's designed to not only affect this age, Father, but you're establishing something before all of the witnesses of heaven. Father, may we learn how to be effective and powerful witnesses of what your grace and mercy will do in one such as us. Father, we pray tonight that the words that we've heard by the power of your Spirit, will penetrate into our hearts and begin to create in us a desire and a hope that we can be changed, not just for our purposes, but for your purposes also. And we thank you that our total confidence in this is in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom you've caused to dwell within us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.